Hi everyone, and welcome to Game Changers with Vicki Abelson. I'm Jason Reed, and this is Vicki. Hi Vicki. Hi Jason, how are you? I'm doing great, how are you? I'm okay, I'm sorry we're like a minute or two late. I, I'm, having, I'm having hair issues. When you I'm, have hair issues, you gotta, gotta deal with them. I'm sorry. Even if it takes an extra minute. <laughs> I'm having it, and I have this great fat faux pic. We're going to talk about this, um, but, but, but before we talk about that, um, how was your week, Jason? You had a stressful week, you said. You know, there have been a lot of stressful things happening this week, but, and, and we talked a little bit um, Not really. Sort of about how sometimes things can all sort of glom together, yes. and all in one fell swoop, yes. and you're really pressuring sometimes. So it's one of those. It, is, it, is it lifting? I feel like it's going to lift soon. I'm optimistic about that, even the, if it hasn't quite yet. It's the astrology on the cusp is, of lifting. The astrology is on your side because there was some kind yes. of square Uranus with up my Saturn. I don't know, <laughs> but it's better now. It's getting better. So it it's, certainly well, sounds uncomfortable. We're, we're, yes, we're, we're easing out of all of that shit right now. Is what we're doing. Oh, and all the food is on the table, so Will can't even eat while we're talking. Do we want to hand him his 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 muffin or no? He does. Okay. So anyway, I'm, I'm 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 we're pretending that Will's not here yet because it's it's the it's the magic it's the magic of cinema and of, of an iPhone ten. So so before we get to any before we before we get to the before we get to our guest, I I, I want to say that I I I have had an extraordinary week of 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 in, of wonder. Yeah. I got to go to see our own Bernard Fowler sing oh. um, at the Bowie celebration on Wednesday night, which was, who knew when I was driving to Riverside that I was going to the end of the earth to see Bernard Fowler, <laughs> but it took an hour and 45 minutes in traffic, and, um, oh, and, and, and my poor friend Cassandra had driven from the Pacific Palisades, so she was in the car for four and a half hours to get. Oh, but the concert was so phenomenal, and uh, and and um, and Will and and, and Will and um, Bernard and Carmine Rojas, the the bass player, sent uh, love to Will, which I forgot to give him when I saw him on Saturday night at the Will Turn uh, when the fo the Fab Foe played. And oh my God, I, you know, I, I can't even go there. It was the first time I had seen them play. I've seen videos all the time, but it was the first time I'd seen them play out. And um, I've known, I, you know, I, we're gonna talk with Will about this, but I, I met Will many years ago on Bleecker Street, and I also met Jimmy Vivino at the same time, his co-founder mm -hmm. of the Fab Bo. And it turned out, you know, I, I knew a couple of guys in the band that I, Rich Pagano, we're, we're, we're Facebook friends for a million years, who knew? And um, anyway, it was an amazing show, as was the Bowie celebration. I can hear that, Will. <laughs> he's, he's rustling, and I can hear the rustling. And, um, but anyway, it was, it was phenomenal. And the surprise of the night for me of the Bowie celebration was that the other lead singer besides Bernard, Joe Sumner, and I'm saying, Joe Sumner, hmm, I know a Gordon Sumner, hmm, Mr. Sting, hmm, yes, his son, what a voice. Oh my God! Amazing. They were the whole thing was amazing. It, it, both shows I saw were stellar, spectacular, and um, uh, made the drive well worth it. it. It made the drive well worth it, and the wheel turn was nice and close, so that one was easy. And there was a wonderful backstage hang afterwards at, at, at Will's gig at the wheel turn. We had it was very nice to see everybody, except I made a total fool of myself because I walked up to Jeff Young, the keyboard player, who's amazing, yeah. and who I I. Um, I spent Christmas 
Eve Knight with at, at Ricky Lee Jones's house and he played and he was jammed, it was fantastic. And I said, hi, Steve. And I had it in my head that he was Steve Ferroni. And so that is something I will never let <laughs> down. And I'm shaming myself publicly, Jeff, for you. Publicly shaming myself that I did. He goes, you know, we don't all look alike. Oh, God. But anyway, um, so uh, so he's now ignoring my email that I sent him today. But I'm, Jeff will be on. And, and, and Jimmy Vivino will be with us in November, uh, too. And, you know, that anyway, it's just it, it's so thrilling. So I, I just want to give a shout out to to our, our, our wonderful uh, supporters, uh, Rick Smokey of Quis Quick Impressions in Chicago, who makes my stuff and my bookmarks and my tissue boxes and everything. And if you need anything printed, um, Rick does, oh, which reminds me, Will, I have to have you do a PSA before you leave. They, he does so much good for so many people. He's so philanthropic. And so, as much business as he gets, he gives away, I think, twice as much. He's extraordinary. So, so if you need anything printed, he just did Harry's new logo. Harry's changing the time of his podcast in the booth. We'll no longer be on Thursdays. It's going to be on Sundays at 7.30, and they just redid Harry's logo. They're just fantastic. And I also want to give a shout-out to my hairdresser. It's my fault the way it looks today, because... But, and I love Nicole Venables of the Ruby Begonia Salon so much, because her hairspray will make for many reasons, but one of them is that her hairspray is called Fuck Off. She's a woman after my own heart. I just love her so much, and she's, she's amazing. And I forgot to tell you, Nicole, that Judy Tenuta wants, to, wants your number. I'm gonna connect you guys, because she liked the hair, right? Remember Judy Tenuta? Oh, no, I have no idea who Judy Tenuta <laughs> We only met last week, and it was fantastic. So you're telling me this is not a Fuck Off do you're sporting right now? <laughs> This is a please fuck me do. Oh no, I'm sorry. Woo, I can't believe I went there. Okay. No, and as a matter of fact, okay, so I wrote, I, I wrote an article for a new uh, site uh, the last couple of days. I turned it in yesterday about the phenomenon of ghosting. You know from this, from oh, this yes. ghosting phenomenon? Yes. yes. I'm familiar with ghosting. And I might be being ghosted at this very minute. I don't know. No, you? I don't think so. Well, it turns out that this lovely guy, after I totally gave up all hope of online dating and like, yeah, um, this lovely guy has been talking to me and he's in Italy. And I was like, well, you know, what? how did we match? Well, you're way more than 30 miles away. But it turns out, I guess he had been here. Anyway, he's on his way back today. He's Jewish, he's Orthodox, he's observant. He, he, he went away off the app for a couple of days because he was observing Sukkot. I mean, Whoa. my father was a Hebrew teacher we didn't know from observing Sukkot. <laughs> I don't know, Sukkot, I don't know. Anyway, he's lovely, so he's on his way for jetting into LA today. I don't know. On we'll account see. of you? No. Or there are other reasons. There, no. But 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 I normally would not even meet somebody that was just going to be in town for a while. But um, I don't know. Quite charming, the gentleman is. So I don't know. So we'll see. Um, but maybe I'm being ghosted. Maybe it was all a ruse. Maybe it was all fake. Because I don't know. Because it's very weird out there. But anyway, I, aside from all of that, what I want to say is that. I have come to really embrace in the last couple of weeks that we've been talking about this manifesting and creating our own story and creating yes. our own reality. And I have found that every time I've been hyper aware, right, Christina? It works. It works. But for the last two weeks, I have found that whenever I have caught myself going in a negative direction and starting to question something, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. The mm -hmm. shit falls apart. And as soon as I really believe it and hang on to it, it's mine. It, can, it cannot be taken away. So I, I'm just going to say that 
I believe that we create our story and our future. And so this, this stress, this is all coming back to you, Jason. <laughs> so this stress you've been experiencing, I believe that if you get into the mindset, if we tell ourselves, yes, we are, in, we are having stress and things are tough, well, the universe hears that, gives us more. But if we make the decision that as of right now, all the doors open, all is clear, all is well. <laughs> To your point, I hereby manifest that the stress will dissipate, is dissipating it's as gone. we speak. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone. I it's, feel like a weight has been lifted. It's pho. It's pho. You know, I don't understand foe. the whole thing with the pho craze. It's pho. P-O. P-H-O is pho. I want to know how P-H-O is pho. This is pho to me. I don't know. But, I, but I'm wrong. I, my children correct me. These are noisy and obnoxious. So I'm going to take one off. Um, and I'm going to leave on Pete George's uh, guitar thing. Look at this. This isn't a crazy thing. He has his, um, you can plug your necklace in and hear his music. This is a brilliant oh, thing that Pete George sick. did, right? Isn't that cool? Yes. Yeah. Very nice piece of jewelry. And this is this and beautiful thing. Handy. That, huh? Always handy. Right? Very handy. Access I, it. You could put your horn on there and just plug yourself. You could put anything put on there. On you there. could do that. Kind of what so, I was thinking. so, all right. So, anyway, um, about oh God, in the in the eighties, in the mid eighties, yeah. um, I was a rock and roll promoter on Bleecker Street, mm -hmm. and um, and back in the day, you know, all these crazy guys that were playing these really big gigs with all these rock stars would come in and they would jam and play on my stage with their original bands, right? So people that played with, with Cindy Lauper and with Phoebe Snow and with Eric Clapton and with Blood, Sweat, Tears and with, uh, with, with uh, but then the actual people themselves would, would come in and on this little tiny stage, Badfinger, I booked Badfinger and mm -hmm. do, yeah, mm -hmm. crazy stuff happened there. And all these amazing people would come in and jam and you know, back in those days, it was like 1986, you know, Will Lee was already on, um, the, it, he was part of the World's Most Dangerous Band in, for, for Late Night with David Letterman, and he came in a couple times, and we would chat, he was always very lovely, and for some reason, I never invited him to play on that, I was intimidated, I, I, and I'm not easily intimidated, but I was, I, I never, he never played, at any of my stuff, which Jimmy Vivino did, a, a lot of Carmine did, a lot of people did, but I don't know why, I never asked him, but he was always lovely. But then we came around full circle again, because then in, um, in the late 90s, my husband was the head monologue writer for David Letterman, and so I would see Will at, at the 4th of July party and at Christmas parties and stuff like that, always very lovely. But it was actually when um, I started this show, well, what was originally The Road Taken, now Game Changers. Will's been like very, very lovely about sending me little notes and, and when he like appreciates, he's coughing over there, poor Will, the aller, the aller rest or whatever the hell isn't working. Um, but anyway, so he was always really lovely about, um, he's always been very lovely and supportive um, about things. And so he's a New Yorker but he was out here to do the FABFO, which by the way, they're gonna be at the Beacon Theater. Will give us the dates for that. I believe mm, it's in early fun. November. Yeah. And um, I got to see them do the entire White Album. And I have to, we have Whoa. to talk about number nine. Now, we have to talk about that, <laughs> like a lot, but oh my God. But, um, 
But anyway, you know, I don't want to go into all of Will's credits because I want to talk about them with him. But for, the, for anybody who's lived on the moon and doesn't know, Will and, and Paul Schaefer, you know, were the two people that started day one with David Letterman on Late Night and ended the last day ever on Late Show with David Letterman and that whole tenure. And so having that kind of longevity in rock and roll, a steady gig like that, there aren't a lot of people in the world that can have that happening. That's pretty amazing. No, that's impressive. And all during that time, he got to play with the most amazing people, but he also won a Grammy Award, a Jazz Grammy Award. He's also been cited in, in, in the Music Hall of Fame and I don't museum, I don't know what the hell it's called, but he'll tell us. Um, Musicians Hall of Fame. Thank you, the Musicians <laughs> Hall of Fame and Musician and Museum, rather. Well, was inducted into that. He's got uh, another thing with N and A's and R's with initials that he's won three awards and he'll have to give us that. He's played with like everybody and I didn't know until today that he played with Barry Manilow and Bette Midler. This is something we have to talk about, but he's played with George Benson, he's played with, he played with Ace Freely. Ace did my jam, see even Ace came and played my jams and I didn't ask Will. But anyway, let's bring him out because I, we want, I want to talk with him about all these things. What, what Jason? He did bring, also bring a bass just in case and he felt he, so inclined he, or if someone felt so inclined to ask, perhaps he, he might did. do something. So we're going to do that. So right we'll now see. let's say hi to, to Will Lee. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, i got to put some of these awards down. <laughs> <laughs> Found a place for them all. Oh, oh, place for that one. And, oh, oh no, yes. and they're falling down. It's Willie. Would you? Would you? Is that the seven or eight that are leaning on each other? Just, just prop them back up. Well, no. I have the feeling I don't have to say much of anything. You guys. No, because now, 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 and now it's all you. So we have to sit very close together so we're all in the show. I just, I heard you say something earlier. That that's not true. Really inspiring, and I think that this has got to be a mashup of, of, of the, the fuck me and the love me do, the fuck off thing. Yes. You said fuck me do, and I think that's going to be like the greatest Paul McCartney mashup. They have to really get in on this. I hope they're watching. I, oh, I'm, 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 sure, I'm sure Paul's people are watching. There's no doubt in my mind. So, all right. So since we started there, I have to say that I heard you say today that. You wanted that you want to be the Ringo of bass players, and I love that so much because Ringo is very underappreciated, I think, as a drummer, except by people in the know. Mm -hmm. So tell us what you meant right. by that. Well, you know, I've, I've heard people say that you know Ringo's not a great drummer, blah blah blah, and there was a, there was a joke that John Lennon once made saying, you know, is it, when they said is, is Ringo a good drummer, he says he's not even the best drummer in the, in the Beatles. <laughs> You know, so, which was a really great line, but but the truth of the matter is, if you listen to those Beatles records, mm -hmm. which so here we go, this is all we're going to be talking. No, about. we're not. We're, we're going to we're talking about Will. More important to me than this conversation, but Ringo was the guy that you wanted to have playing drums on your song. You bring a song in, and he would have the perfect balance, and he still would. If as he creates music to this day. Christina saw him at the Greek, the oh, yeah. just yeah. Saturday. Absolutely. Fantastic so, show. So what his amazing craft is, one of his amazing things about his playing mm -hmm. is that he, he finds the right part that's somewhere between supporting the song mm -hmm. and adding something to the song if the song needs a little something. Like, can you give us an example? <clears throat> I know you can. Well, look, if, if the only thing that he ever uh, wrote or created was... <laughs> as a fill 
that's like a, a wealth of filth yeah. just in those few notes. It is. But you know, like his upside down beats that he used for uh, songs like Anna. Mm -hmm. uh, early I Beale love record. Anna. I, that was the first record I had. Anna and uh, introducing and, uh, the Beatles. <clears throat> and all I've got to do. Mm -hmm. Crazy up down, upside down drum beat. Of course, uh, Ticket to Ride. Those, those kind of interesting, that had sort of an interesting hump to the feel of it all. And uh, another great example is, of course, Tomorrow Never Knows. Mm -hmm. Turn off your mind, relax, and float down streams. That is magic. And did you start Song out as a drummer? Do, do I, do I know this? About did you start out as a drummer? I did. And was it was it Ringo? Were you Ringo inspired? It was the Beatles themselves, the whole mm -hmm. entity, the whole like experience of them. You know, do your craft, girls scream, game over. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, all I needed okay, to know. Okay, so that's what we want. Right. So that's what I want to talk about. So, so <laughs> yes. oh, okay, I remember where I was when I saw the Beatles on that. Oh, me too. Right. Okay. So which was where? I was in Howard Beach, Queens, mm -hmm. um, and uh, I can remember sitting on the floor in the living room. I, I, I and I can remember sitting on the floor in front of the television set, and life was never the same again. Do you even remember who else was in the room? I don't care. Exactly. No, I, my, my whole family was, I think, but I don't. All it was was, the, was the Beatles and me. I was the same. That was it. I think my parents were back behind me somewhere. <laughs> some other family members. I had like three or four or five, eight, twelve brothers. I don't even know. But every pixel was mine. I wanted every pixel. Okay, so now you're a kid watching this. I got this. this. And so you, you have this experience. What's your takeaway from that experience? My takeaway was I'm now officially a musician for the rest of my life. Had you been a musician the day before? No. Nothing? I, had, I owned a set of drums that my dad had oh. given me years before, but they just collected dust in a room. Okay. But after that, I was Mr. Drums. I was Mr. Music. So, like, did you ever see that um, uh, Love Actually when uh, um, Liam Neeson's uh, stepson, like, locks himself in a room and, like, teaches himself to play the drums because he has a crush on the girl and he has to learn how to play the drums? Am I the only one who's seen Love Actually? Really? I've lived oh, it, but I didn't okay. see this. All right. So, so but your, your father was a, a musician. He your, was. And your mother. Really? Yeah, she was a great jazz singer. So, you grew up in a musical house. Lots of jazz. Lots of jazz, and did you did you appreciate jazz when you were a kid? I did, because uh, that's kind of what I I didn't know how much or in what ways I appreciated it that later on in life, you know, made it so valuable. But I learned about about how to like what a groove is supposed to feel like, mm. and that that let me know for the rest of my life what gelling with other musicians was supposed to feel like. Ah. There was something in that ensemble. Playing of jazz that you heard so that I heard so much of as a kid in our in our household, that I that I got an idea of what's grooving and what's not grooving, you know, that applied to everything else in my musical life. And so, is that the music that you would choose? To, like as a kid, were you listening to Chubby Checker and rock and roll and things, or were you draw? Were you not? Was your house not filled with that? The stuff that was on the radio compared to the Beatles was almost like black and white. But yeah. when the Beatles uh, arrived, all of a sudden things went to color. It's like the sun came out, basically. You know, and speaking of the sun coming out, I'm, look, I'm looking at our thing and we're too bright. So I'm thinking that we should note, Christine, I think we should just turn off that. that it's just me, one. I'm amazingly it's Caucasian. Um, I think that's much better. <laughs> Thank you. Isn't it nice that we're too bright? It's good. You're amazing. You are, you are the whitest person in the world. You are. Well. <laughs> 
You are, but but you're the whitest person with blackest soul. Hey, you, you in a good way, because um, you've got that groove. So so okay. So the beat. So you hadn't played the drums. You weren't doing music. Were you were you a good student? Were you what, what were you into hey, when you were a kid? Was, you know, I was one of these kids who was who used to be smart. I skipped first grade. What? How do you skip first grade? Well, in Texas, it was easy because we were in this little tiny town called Huntsville. It was a country school. Yeah. And there were two main uh, classrooms with an auditorium in between the two. The first classroom, where Miss Velma was the teacher of all four rows of desks. Okay. Uh, or all, yeah, all mm -hmm. four rows. Row one was first grade. Row two was second grade. No kidding. Third and fourth. Miss Doggett in the other, <laughs> in the other building, had fifth through eighth. Okay. One teacher, four grades. Wow. So and there's only me, four kids in a grade. There's no, there's like you know four, five, six, whatever the oh. row, however long the row was. Uh -huh. But each row was A grade, and okay. they were being taught like at their level by one teacher. Wow. So she would go, okay, now, like now first graders, blah blah blah. So for me, I, I could read since I got out of kindergarten. I could already, already read for some reason. I got okay. a few awards for it as a kid and yeah. that kind of thing. But I was so told I to go over to this row. <laughs> yeah. Which. Didn't seem like a big deal moving over a foot and a half, but I was skipping first grade. <laughs> That's amazing. Crazy? You you literally moved over a row. Yeah, can you, you just whole just scoot over? <laughs> and now you're in college. You know? like, wow, that easy. My life is good. Oh my god! All right, so you're a smarty pants in school, and um, I moved this way because I remember I remember that the rows were the, this was first, you know, looking at the teacher. This was right. second, and the big older fourth graders were, you know, Grand four and a half right feet here. over that way. So now, are you are you a littler kid than all the other kids in your row, or were you always tall? In my mind, because of my self esteem, I'm always short and small. Okay, now this is interesting. Very interesting. This is. I don't see myself as a kind of large person at all. Okay, this strange. is really interesting. We were talking briefly <clears throat> before we went on the air that um, uh, Will and I are both in recovery. Well. I certainly am. I, I don't certainly know about you. I am. I'm not going to bust your anonymity the way I, you just did mine, but go ahead. Well, no, no, I asked you if we could no, talk about it. I'm very public about it. Yes, and, and I've heard you speak about it on, a, I love on other shows. And I speak about it all the time. I, I don't speak about the name of the program because I honor the traditions, but I do speak about the fact that is I there do. Is there an A in it? There, there, there is an A. There's an A in, I go to many, and there's an A in all of them, actually. That's, yeah. you know, whatever you need is an incredible program. It is incredible, and it's changed my life completely. So we're not there yet, but we're here. So let's go. So what? So when did you start using, and when did you stop, and why? What? 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 what using. I mean, what was your drug of choice? Mine was pot. But Cocaine and alcohol. Okay. And were you doing that stuff when you were a kid in Texas? Not quite. We moved out when I was when I was around eleven. Oh, okay. We moved to Miami, and about uh, maybe two or three years later, I discovered all those great things like drinking and stealing from the booze cabinet and oh, yeah. smoking cigarettes. And, oh, yeah. You know. I was doing and that then, too. of course, pot, Miami, Miami. <laughs> so, so now, did your parents know what was going on with you? They were having their own little oh, party. Okay. They weren't really, they were easy to sneak around on, mm. if you will. Yeah, my mother was easy to sneak around on too. So they were having their own party. You were doing this. Now, was it affecting? Were you still good in school? Um, you skipped first grade? 
It was becoming less and less of a priority for me, mm -hmm. being good in school. Mm -hmm. uh, being good musically was always important. Okay, so... so I hated the people in school. So the faster I could get out of there... I mean, I had very few friends. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the guy that's going to show up at a reunion. <laughs> I've never gone to any of my high school reunions. Yeah. You get those notices all the time? No, hey, my school had 5,000 kids. And so the, no, I never have gotten one ever. But you get the notice and you don't go. You're right. I just trash it right away. Because yeah. yeah. I mean, what, but you're what's very it? social now, and everybody loves you. Um, I got hellos for you from from Bernard, from Karma. Everybody was saying hello to you, and everybody. Well, these are my people you're day. talking about here. And you know, I was. Bernard was at my birthday. He told me he was he, he was here like a few days later. In Bernard Fowler, one of the great talents he, he's in our business. He's so good. Unbelievable. And he said he had just. Um, he had just been to your party. And I was thinking that today too is the music business is a very small world. You know, I was looking on the thread of people that were that were liking the fact that you were gonna be on the show and I was looking at um, uh, just uh, Tommy Allen from the old China Club and, and but- um, Gave Fab Four our first gig, Tommy did Allen he, did. Did he really? He sure did. At the China Club? Yes. Yeah, wow. I know, he was, he was the guy sort of booking talent for the room and stuff. Yes, you know? yes, I, I, yeah. I was standing next to him one night at hey, a- Tommy. Tommy Allen, we love you so much. He's the best, he's my neighbor too. Is Very, he really? We live, we live about a block and a half from each other in the city. I have not seen Tommy since the China Club days, but I did a Wednesday night jam thing there for a while at the end of- He's as wonderful as ever. Just a great guy, great talent, plays great drums. He played on my album. Oh, that's so fantastic. He's on the, uh, there's, a, there's a track on the new album, the newest album, I shouldn't say it's new anymore because it's three or four years old, but it's called Misunderstanding. I love that song. You know it? I do know yeah. it. I was, I was listening to you in rotation. Tommy Allen. Wow. And it, misunderstanding is not a misunderstanding, it's misunderstanding, which is so cool. Woo, clever. But, no. um, <laughs> that, but that's, I was telling you, Wait. Fooled him, you like. Fooled him. I must have listened to that 30 times today. I am mad. I have mad love for it. It's fantastic. It's a fantastic video. A wonderful Thank video. Um, we're, we're all over the place, and I, and I want to go back. But we, what we started to talk about, what I found so interesting that you said, was about low self-esteem, and then we talked about the fact of drugs and alcohol, and, and did that play into it for you? Um... I'm sure it did, yeah. I mean, you know, I felt really secure when I had some cocaine in my pocket. I oh. felt like, okay, I'm good. I'm good to go. I'm secure. Let's, let's move ahead. And it was such a weird illusion, too, because it's really just, I mean, the mind is, the mind is a terrible waste. <laughs> I'm doing a PSA. Yeah, but I think it's the mind is a terrible thing to waste. Oh, yeah. Well, in my case. <laughs> uh, so, so but, but, yeah, you know, I would, I would actually just... Uh, you know, it's it's funny. It's funny about security. It's such a it's such an illusion. But you've accomplished so much. Like you were already accomplishing a lot when you got sober, because you're, you're 33 years sober. Mm -hmm. So, but you were so 33 years. You you already had like this very serious gig on television with with Letterman. I was a functioning. You you were doing guy. all of these other side projects and on so many people's albums and 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 so function you functioning. I was so why why did you stop? Why did you choose to stop? It got to be 
such a burden just to keep it all going. You'd have to you have to call the dealer, you'd have to be at a bar, you'd have to go cop some things, some drinks, you'd have to like, sometimes, God forbid, leave the house in your paranoid state to go cop. <laughs> you know, when the guy wouldn't come over, he'd be like, what do you mean you can't come over? You know, like, you you're coming it. over, right? They make it a little too easy now. It just got to be just a chore every day. Did you work high? Were you? Were you? I not not for a long time, mm -hmm. but the last few years, mm -hmm. you know, it kept creeping into the schedule more and more. Right. You know, and, and then there was no gap in, after a while. Just right. Hot all the time. What, did you ever get busted for it? I mean, I don't mean busted, arrested. I mean, did you ever get called out for it? No, but I I actually had a, at the very end of my run, mm -hmm. as we call it in the, in the program, I. Uh, actually was in this amazing position to, I had been hired to sing um, solo on three national television uh, campaigns, which is an, an enviable position. I didn't mention, by the way, Nobody and I just want to say that to you probably got more work in that world of, of doing, as a singer, as, as a singer yeah. in, on, on commercials and all of that than probably anybody, you were probably the most no. What you 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 were one of the most working people in the jingle world. Yes. Well, well, that includes wow. playing too. So yeah. okay. Anyway, but, the singing thing yeah. was like a sing. When you're a, a vocalist, you cannot hide behind your instrument. You're dealing with the client. You you know you're in front of everybody after all the musicians go home. Oh, so you're not just sitting there. Right. Yeah, yeah, if, yeah. You, I mean, you can you can play sick. You can play. You can hide behind your instrument. You know, not even look at anybody and just go. Right. But if you're singing, it's all about you. And that kind of pressure when you're paranoid and high, just you can't really sustain that. Okay, so I interrupted. So you had three gigs. Three huge national TV campaigns to Which, sing. by the way, pay. And singing is, you know, paid a lot more than playing. A lot more. Yeah. So uh, I've been up all night. The phone is ringing. I'm looking at it ringing. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm not here. I don't exist, period. So wow. Why, why would I answer that phone? You know, there, it, was, it was the phone call, the where are you phone call. So you didn't even show up? I just, no. And at that point, I thought, I actually asked myself a question that, that, that I, with which I kind of blew my own mind. I said, are you happy? And, and I couldn't come up with a, with a lie. I couldn't come up with a yes. Oh. That point, I knew it was time. Yeah. So I was lucky to get into rehab, like really soon after that. They had a slot that was open, mm -hmm. and I said I'll be right there. And you took a you took a hiatus from. It took five weeks. And when you came out in five weeks, did you feel like? Did I felt you... like a raw wound. Mm -hmm. It was bizarre. I was out in the world, like without you know, without my security blanket. But I had already done a bit of therapy in, in rehab, like mm -hmm. enough to sort of have some tools, mm -hmm. you know, to, uh, to know if you go to a meeting, you don't do this, you don't associate with that person, you, you know. And so were meetings weird for you because you were Willie and you were on TV and was that weird in any way? No, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. I think, you know, I really felt safe and anonymous in those rooms. Even if I wasn't actually anonymous, mm -hmm. I felt like... That's okay too. Yeah, know. yeah. I need to be here, so. Um, yeah. Do you still go to meetings? Rarely. Uh huh. Rarely. 
But you know, it's funny, man, when you're talking about like people that are known going to meetings. I mean, LA is the, is the home of like huge stars go to the meetings, you know? Well, they also have the, the, the yeah, they have true. those. Elite meetings. They do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, so there are those, but then there are also those who move among us and uh, who just show up and I've been to, I go to the writer's meetings and there are incredible people that show up to, to speak. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's just the most amazing program. It so, is. Thank God. So, so was there any pushback at work when, at, at Lecho when you were getting sober? Was, was, was it accepted? Was it fine? Was it weird? Everybody was cool. Mm -hmm. I mean, I never missed a show mm -hmm. because of being wasted or, mm -hmm. or high or anything. So that was one of the things I could actually do and get away with. But singing in front of a bunch of uh, corporate people is not one of the things I could do. I, by the way, one of the videos I watched today was you singing MacArthur Park. Oh, <laughs> my, on the cake. Oh, what a gig, right? Oh my God, he, on, on, on Late Show with, um, with um, oh God, I'm, I'm totally spacing now. Um, Jimmy Webb, Jimmy wrote Webb. The song. I got him on the gig. Did you really? I called him up, I said, look, I gotta tell you what's happening. Are you gonna be, are you gonna be around in July or June or whenever that thing aired? Mm -hmm. He said, uh, yeah, I'll just be off the road. And I said, Listen, I've been asked to sing MacArthur Park, but like Letterman wants me to do it, and they we, they're gonna embellish the band with strings and horns and all this stuff. It's unbelievable. I said, would you if I if I could talk him into it? Would you want to play? You know, and he said, yeah. So I called up Paul and I said, hey, I got this great idea. What about just getting Jimmy to play with us on the thing? And, and in fact, he's on, on the original Richard Harris record. Mm -hmm. Starts out with ding, 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 right? Yeah. First thing you hear is Jimmy Webb playing that part on a harpsichord. Oh. And he has not played that since the session. So when he got to the show, wow. that was what, his what role. Year was was it, what year tune. was it on the show? Was he on the show? What I guess year was it was that? like 80, uh, let me think about this. It had to be like in, it had to be in 14, I think. Okay. So not the show ago. In, in, in 15. Mm -hmm. And it was so cute. He actually made me relax because he was so nervous. He was oh. like a little kid. Oh. And it was, it was, it's like, oh, I hope we get it right. Oh. It was just great. It was, and <laughs> I just want to say, say the, the note that Where's you, friends? he's lovely. I saw him at Carnegie Hall and I saw him recently. Did here. you? Yeah, I saw him at Carnegie Hall years ago. But then I saw him recently. What's the place where they have the outdoor concerts here in the summertime? I can't think of what it's called. It's an outdoor band shell. Anyway, I saw him there just maybe two it years ago. It wouldn't be Hollywood Bowl. No, no. <laughs> oh, that little band shell. Yeah, that little No, this one's in Pasadena. Dive over there. It's in Pasadena. Oh, okay. I can't think about it. The Rose? Not the Rose. It's, no, it's an outdoor thing. I can't think of what it's called. Anyway, anyway. he's just the best. Um, and uh, that note that you hit at the end of that song. That was oh, one of these deals. Oh, my. <laughs> no, what note was that? I think B flat. Holy and I think that shit. that note is the note that caused Paul Schaefer to go to Dave and say, hey, I think Will could pull this off if you want to try it. Because we had done it at rehearsal. Wow. And we were going to use it as a, that song as a bumper. Just, you know, because right, Dave, right. Dave would put in a mild request, you know, can you do, can you learn this song by Elvis Costello mm -hmm. and maybe mm -hmm. throw in a little MacArthur Park and, you know, we get to rehearsal and everybody wasn't quite prepared, but I was super prepared. And so Paul was really impressed with that, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and he went back to Dave and reported it. I think we could pull this off as a feature. It was know, phenomenal. It was phenomenal. 
So, so scary. That, I mean, that's unbelievable. Such a big note that you hit it. Like the whole progression there at the end to that I to that B flat, which is whoa, um, crazy. Um, and and so we're skipping the childhood. We're going to go back, but because we're here, so the moments that were the craziest for you, you've played with everybody on that show. Um, in the early days, yeah, they would have the band back up everybody. Everybody. So were there Sunday highlights for you? Oh my god! That was a good one. What, what song did you do? Do you we remember? Did, uh, I, got, I got you, babe. Yeah. <laughs> and, when they uh, were still sunny and shiny. I, I just had a flashback of Groundhog Day, the movie. Anyway, oh, um, uh, you know how every morning the alarm went off? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, okay, so. last anything. And first in many years. They hadn't seen each other, you know, sunny and shiny. That's right, I remember it was, that. It, but that was pretty special. That was pretty cool. What else was what Anything else you can point to that was like mind blowing? Well, the, old, the, the thing that I always say in these situations. In these, in any time I'm ever asked, and it's without any any doubt, is when James Brown first came on the show. The first year of the show, James Brown was a guest, a musical guest, and we had rehearsed two tunes with him, and and the band was so kick ass, and he was so impressed that in the middle of the end of the at the, at the end of the toward the end of the show, mm -hmm. in the middle of the segment where Dave is is talking for the last time, we think it's going to be the last time, but James. And, and he's about to let James go, and he says, uh, is there anything else you'd like to do before we close? And James Brown goes, uh, yeah, uh, before we close, do we close with, I got, I got the feeling. And we had not rehearsed this song, I got the feeling. But he, he, heard but us, he was just feeling he it? He heard us play it as a, as a bumper. Oh, oh, commercials. oh. Uh -huh. He was so impressed that he, he wanted to be part of it. Wow. So he, you know, unprecedented, there's never been any musical act that did three songs on the list. Is that true? I mean, already two was was, right. was was already beyond the limit, and and, wow. and Dave couldn't resist saying yes, so we went for it. It was just wow. The audience was on their feet, and you know we had a lot of friends in the house too. And I look back at the footage from from back then, and I see oh, I can't believe how many of my friends are in the house that night. Wow! Wow! Everybody wanted to be there because so James people Brown begged was for tickets. Right, yeah. right. So who else? What else? Who else were guests on the Lake Show that that? Your friends would, that you were getting called. I mean, the darling love, the darling love thing. I was year there for four of those. I mean, those were just ridiculous. Shoot, it's baby, because please of her. come home. Oh she my is god. She's so strong. <laughs> the first year we did it, uh, it, it was only the four-piece band and her. And you remember how, how many people they would add? They would add oh my whole god. choirs and French horns and harps and lots of strings and, and my friend Bruce Kaplan would come out of the thing and right, with saxophone with the Santa and, suit on yeah so great but uh, four pieces when I look wow. back at the, yeah. at the very first one that we did mm -hmm. it was years before Letterman had asked for there to be a dress code for the band so everybody's like in sweatshirts I think even Darlene was in a sweatshirt and it wow. was really just so down wow but there were only four musicians and her and it was still to me, as powerful <laughs> as with all the bells and whistles. Wow. It was still because it was her. Yeah. And she's that strong. Wow. She's that great. She's Amazing. the real deal. Amazing. That, that was such a, a, a monument. It's like such an important thing that Dave did every year. That And Jay Thomas throwing the, the football every year and trying to hit the pizza off the, the meatball, tray. The meatball, yeah. The meatball, right. <laughs> the, oh, my God. God rest his soul. He was yeah. really funny. <laughs>
And always great with Dave. Always great. Yeah. What, what did you have favorite guests? I mean, aside from playing with them, did you have favorite moments? Because you, I cannot believe your history oh on God. that show. What you lived through. So many. Zevon. Oh, about Warren Zevon. Every and time he was on was, was a riot. He was the greatest. Yeah. I'm attempting to write a song about about Are him you? these days. Yeah. I'm gonna call it Gray Guitar because he always had a, this gray guitar with him. I don't know. It was like a primer gray. That's unusual. It is. It is unusual. All right, it's so him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let's get back to Willie. So you're in Florida. You're, you're Okay, so you start playing the drums. Now, to me, one of the greatest bass lines of all time, Taxman. I mean, Paul's Taxman. I mean, that, yeah. that bass line, that's that, you, and Smoke on the Water are the reasons that I wanted to learn how to play bass. So... <laughs> You're starting on the drums. Why do you and and are you in bands as a drummer? Yes, couldn't wait to start a band. Got so a band, how old were you when you have a band? I don't know. I think I was probably at twelve, maybe or something. Oh, and so we, did you have girls screaming? <laughs> they didn't even look in, in the direction of the band. They were like, "Did you keep it down?" <laughs> but we were doing like, uh, you know, I mean, obviously. We're just trying to figure it out. So I, I had the drums, thanks to my dad, from years before the Beatles ever hit the Ed Sullivan show. Right. I had the kit, and uh, we had. Did you uh, take lessons? Oh, we were really young, you know. No, no lessons, but you we just were taught so, yourself. Yeah. We were, we were so young that that you know, even though the Beatles were were out there and, mm -hmm. and plenty of bands had been established, kids my age didn't really understand about uh, the bass. Everybody played either guitar or drums. Guitars, drums. My brother's guitars, band did not have a bass player. There were guitar players left and right. There were drummers all over the place. You're so, absolutely so, right. So our band consisted of my little kit, me and me and the drums, two guitar guys. Right. No PA, because that was way extravagant. <laughs> What's a PA? <laughs> so what did we play? We couldn't play, obviously, do any vocal stuff. So we were like a surf instrumental band. Playing like the Ventures and stuff. I was just gonna say the Ventures, Chantes, yes. right. you know those those cool walk don't run kind yes, of surf yes, instrumentals yes, yes. with a lot of reverb when the amp and stuff. And uh, it wasn't until you know I kind of got over that that I thought you know it'd be nice to have our band sound have a more professional sound. So we the idea was not only to get a PA but to fill it out with a bass player. But there wow. were no bass players our age. Wow. So I said, look. I'll switch to bass. Let's get a guy. You know, let's just get a drummer. Were drummers? There were a lot of kids learning to play the drums in those there were, days. There were kids banging, mm. banging drums because that's like you know, for for a, ma a young male, bashing stuff is so natural. It's just a natural <laughs> thing to want to do, right? Yeah. So, and I still to this day love playing drums. Do you? I don't, I don't play enough. I don't have a place to set up a kit because I live in New York City and mm. the apartment wouldn't be allowed for five seconds. I'd be out of it, kicked out. But um, the, the bass thing, I had been the lead singer in the band, and the big wake-up call was, okay, now I'm on, we got a drummer, and his dad owned a music store, and they got us our first gig in the parking lot of Sunnyland Music was the name of the store. <laughs> parking lot of Sunnyland Music in the strip mall down in, in South Miami. And at that point, rehearsing for that gig is when I realized, wow, Playing bass and singing is really. Can I go back to drums? <laughs> but we had already hired the, the guy, so and his dad got us the gig. Drumming and singing is easier than. Oh, 
So messy. Because basically the drum pattern, mm -hmm. you know, if you're the, the kind of drummer that supports a groove, right. you're just groovy. You're okay. just playing this thing, and it's kind of pretty much repetitive. Okay. But bass playing gets involved with like notes and stuff. I've heard of these things. Right? I've heard of notes. Yes. Very technical talk. I don't want to get <laughs> anybody's head. Be careful funny. with that here. I'm blonde. <laughs> Not really. Not you. So, so, okay. So being a bass. So that was like, wow, I'm just kind of stuck here. <coughs> I got to work on this. And it's funny because every time, so now I do a lot of playing bass and singing. Yes, you do. But every time you do. <coughs> Excuse me. Every time you, every time I, I have to learn a new song, it's like mm -hmm. starting from the beginning again. You, you have to learn the bass part. Really? It's going to be underneath the singing, and, but then you got to have it so down that you're not thinking about that to the point where you can't deliver the message of the song. Wow. You know, this is really what's important. This is I the, have never this thought about this. Right? right, of course. So you have to learn the song as, as a, on bass first. That's kind of how I, yeah. Before you so approach you can, the... So that can become second nature. So mm -hmm. you can forget about that while you're actually delivering the message mm -hmm. of the song. That's fascinating. Okay, so so you switched. You haven't said much. No. <laughs> <laughs> you got a question for him? I'm interested in hearing more about these notes you talk about here. Notes? No, too technical. I can't, too, I can't get into Well, you did so, skip first, first grade after that's all. That's true. Okay, so Mike Nathan Senior is bass here. Warren Zevon, what? I'm looking at what oh, people are tons saying. Tons of people. Um, Writing in to say hello. Tons of hello to people. Hello. Um, somebody said they can't hear. I don't know why you can't hear because can you guys hear? Let us know because I don't. I don't know. We've never had that problem. Let us know. Let, let us know. know. Let us know. <laughs> so, um, Chaka. Chaka. What? What did you? What about Chaka? Did you play with? Yes. Um, I did. What was uh, that like? It was. Well, you know, All Chaka Khan is Aretha is Aretha. That's a, that's a entity into into it her own self. Mm -hmm. That's and you got to stuff, play with Reba too. Just a little bit of recording oh. and a couple of moments here and there. But but Shaka is the singer that everybody imitated. She's the the soul singer that all the ch the, the, the chick singers wanted to. And I think it was because she was not only great but but stylistically accept uh, you know accessible. Mm -hmm. You you could sort of go there easier than you could go to Aretha mm -hmm. thing because Aretha was just this Unto anomaly. Herself. Yes, you know? but uh, Shaka was really incredible in the studio. We had some some great times. We made on every woman. We did. A you were on that song. Some other Damn. some other cool uh, songs on that same album, which was just called Shaka. That was her first solo album. And then after that, the same producer, Reef Martin. Mm -hmm would hire me to, to do some other really cool uh, tr tracks for her. We did a thing called, I think it was called Bebop Medley or something, where she incorporated a bunch of really old Bebop standards and put them into this really groove-oriented me me medley of jazz, otherwise jazz songs, and she sang the hell out of them, of course, because that's all she knows how to do. And, you know, um, it was just a thrill, because I was just as you know big of a fan of hers as anybody. All right, so so um, we're going back before we, we before we go forward. So you're playing bass. You have this band. You're playing in a parking lot. You're how old? Uh, yeah, let's say thirteen at that point. Maybe. So now at this point, do you know when I grow up, I this is what I want to do. do? Is this all I want to do? I wasn't ever. 
And once I got into this mm -hmm. set behind the drums, five minutes after the Beatles went off the air, the mm -hmm. first night, February 9th, 1964. <laughs> Not that you remember anything. No, at approximately, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what, I guess, yeah. 8.07, I was, I was a professional musician from that moment forward. And it was, it was one of those things where I really feel lucky knowing this, that I never really ever had to make a choice about what I'm going to do now, next. Okay. There was no fork in the road. Let's talk. So there was no ever. plan B ever. Never. I love that. Okay, because this is you know this show game changers, and you are most certainly a game changer. But it started out the road taken to help people figure out how you did for us to understand how you did what you did. And I have found almost without exception that people who are successful don't have a plan B. That if you have a plan B, you're gonna fall on plan B if times get tough. But you didn't really have so much tough, I don't think, because it, it seemed, okay, so, so you're a kid playing in a parking lot, what happens after that? When, when do you get paid to be a musician for the first time? I was already getting paid by that point. In the parking lot? Come on, you're 13, and you're getting it paid. It sounds pretty seedy, getting what? paid in the parking lot. You're getting paid at 13 in the parking lot, really? Well, actually, I can't say that we actually got paid for that gig. But gigs before that, I was already getting like six bucks a man for some, some of these like Catholic Catholic youth organization gigs where we where we were the instrumental band playing surf instrumentals and stuff like right. that. Right. So that felt pretty good. Now, were you getting paid because you... Did you go into it and say, okay, I'm going to make my living, do I'm going to make money doing this? Um, like, were you also like sort of a business hustler a little bit? I or? didn't, well, I already had the drum kit, so I didn't, right. and I still live with my parents, so I didn't need any money yet. But did you want to be valued that, because it sounds to me like you, or that wasn't your idea, it just kind of happened. I'm not that mature, <laughs> okay. even still. <laughs> but I did know that I, I, once I was a bassist, I had my eye on this bass in the window. Oh. Cole Gable's music. Okay. What was it? Gorgeous white Fender Precision, 64. Okay. And I just, Christmas was coming, mm -hmm. and I said to Dad, Dad, um, <clears throat> I know what I'd like for Christmas, and blah, blah, blah. And Christmas morning, there was a brown, oh. no brand name, really ugly bass oh. <laughs> leaning against the really goofy amplifier and I said oh my god what am I going to do with this and, I, and at first I was really disappointed mm -hmm. I was like oh man he knew what I wanted but he mm -hmm. didn't get it I don't get it I don't understand what's happening here I mean how old were you at that point maybe 13 mm -hmm. so I showed him I went to work and got that bass how long did it take I you I gigged my ass off Two or three months. That's very you know what fast. I'm and I think Dad knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, he wasn't just going to hand me a freebie and say, you know, you didn't have to earn anything. You're already amazing. He didn't. He's not that. He wasn't that kind of guy. So he your was dad was not only a musician. Your dad also was an educator. Was he an educator? Yeah, he was the dean of University Line School of Music. For, oh wow! He, in fact, he saved it from from going away. Wow. Because he had been in Texas when, where we grew up until I was 11. Mm -hmm. He uh, was the head of this music department in, in Huntsville, Texas. And 
he put, had put together a really great music school with a great faculty. So it was the word was out that here's a guy who knows what he's doing. Uh -huh. The president of the University of Miami called him up and said, would you come and be the head of the fine arts department at the University of Miami? And wow. my dad says, yes, but I understand you have, your plan is to take the music school and kind of glom it into the fine arts department. Mm -hmm. and I, I will come and do this for the school if you promise me that you'll keep the music school separate. And from there, he built it up to this amazing destination that it is wow, today. Wow, wow. Yeah, he was a heavy guy. That's phenomenal. And did your mother stay, did she stay musical? Mm -hmm. Not so much? Mm -hmm. She kind of fell off the, 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 the musical wagon. Okay. But, did, did, but your parents lived to see you have success? Yes, my dad certainly did. My mom was already, yeah, I guess I was doing well when, when my mom passed away. I was doing pretty so okay, so so you're so you're gigging and you're thirteen. You're, you're still going to school. Are you still doing okay in school? You're not skipping grades school anymore. School is becoming less and less of a thing. Less and less. Yeah. Less and less. I was less <laughs> but you finished. I was less headed for uh, valedictorian. Okay. As every day went by. But you finished school. I I finished high school. Okay. Yeah, yeah. that's that's what I meant. Yeah. yeah. All right. So so you finished high school. So now you're gigging all the way through school. Um. Yes. Lots of gigs. Lots of girls. Plenty of girls. Plenty of girls. Lots of fun. Lots of fun. And uh, lots, they, of, lots of drinking. Lots of. That was starting to mm -hmm. take place, and uh, you know, I was surrounded by people doing the same thing, of course. Uh -huh. So it was easy to just party, and go nuts. And so, how how did life change for you from Florida house? This boy coming up north. Oh. Some serious music because I, I I didn't know until today that you played with Bette Midler and Barry Manilow like that whole thing was that one of your first that was her her first it national was her first. tour and so how did you get on uh, did you or, all right where did you start where's your first big gig my first amazing break came when uh, okay so I'm going to college I'm at the University of Miami I'm in, in my second year and I, I, mm -hmm. I almost flunked out the first year and then I decided to make electric bass my major which was really what was it before well it started with <laughs> God, what was it in the very beginning some absurd thing um french horn it was french horn why well because i'd come out of uh I was a, was a trumpet player and turned French horn player. Wait, when were you a trumpet player? We haven't even oh, heard about the when trumpet. When you skipped to college, Wait I didn't get... When was there a trumpet? Well, for years. Really? For, for like junior high school and high school. And at the end of high school, the band director of the marching band and the concert band, same thing, had me switch over to French horn. And I was like, oh, sure, okay. So next thing I knew, I was a French horn player. And I get into the University of Miami, and I was going to be a French horn major, and I really sucked really bad. Did the world a favor, got off the French horn, became a bass major. And at the time, there were no electric bass majors, so I think I was the first one. Wow. And I didn't know you could do that, but the assistant dean saw that I was failing and said, look, man, they're blowing this, this whole thing. You know, you're going to get kicked out of school. Wow. Why don't you be do what you do. a major? I've seen you. I've heard you play. You've got amazing, amazing potential. Learn how to read bass clef and blah, blah, blah. So I was in, but by the time I left uh, Miami, I was in like eight bands. I was playing all the time, <laughs> six sets a night, six nights a week. Oh my uh, God. That was always happening, uh -huh. and then everything in between. Uh -huh. And I got this uh, 
And so I was idolizing this particular band that was in New York called Dreams. Okay. Randy Brecker, Michael Brecker, Billy Cobham. Oh, wow. Um, just like, you know, this was in the era of the jazz rock fusion band. Chicago, wow. Blood, Sweat, and Tears, mm -hmm. Dreams. So this is the 70s? This is 1970, yeah. Mm-hmm. I get this strange phone call from Randy Brecker. All right, let me see the number. It's a 212. So, uh, You're okay. still in Florida? Yeah, I'm in big band class. Somebody slaps the note on my amp to call Randy Brecker, and I, it was so out of context I didn't put it together. So, anyway, I called the number, and Randy's girlfriend answered the phone, and she said she knew to expect the call. And, oh. and I said, What's going on? She, she, she said that Randy and, and the band want you to come up and audition for Dreams. How did they know about you? Well, that's that, that was the most amazing, that's the key, but some guy came down to guest lecture at the University of Miami one day, mm -hmm. and we jammed. He went back to New York and knew the Breckers, and knew that they were looking for a bass player, and he exhausted everybody in New York trying to replace their, their at the time, current bass player. And it was just so random. Wow, that's crazy, that's while you're in college jamming in a class? And they, they couldn't have possibly known how much I idolized the band. It was to the point where they, they had it, they said, look, we'll fly you up, if you make the audition, we'll pay you, no, you fly yourself. Oh, okay. If you make the audition, we'll pay you back. And I get to the audition, and it was really intimidating because they were like, all these, these road cases, Miles Davis, Santana, Johnny wow. Winter, and I'm walking oh, on this hall. Oh my going, God. Sit down, they put a bunch of music in front of me, and I see the song titles, and I said, guys, I read, but I don't think I need to see this. Just count it off, let's see what happens. And they were really moved mm -hmm. and impressed that they you didn't have to do any work and to teach me anything. Wow. Because I was already such a huge fan. Okay, so I want to talk about that for a second, your work ethic. So you're already telling us that you were doing like six gigs a night, six days a week, practicing, I imagine that you took that very seriously. Um, no, but I took playing seriously. Okay, so you were learning on, exactly. on the gig. Yes, okay. very much so. That's okay. always been my kind of thing, my MO. I don't do... Okay, so but wait a minute. Now, you're going up and you're playing this stuff. Had you played that music before or you just knew you could? Two things. I, I sort of played along, mm -hmm. but the drummer in Dreams was so strong. Billy Cobham was so strong. Amazing. That that was really the first time that I could, that I could, you know, actually um, relate to feeling that I didn't have to be the timekeeper. Mm. And I was, I'd gotten used to, to being the timekeeper, feeling like, Okay, in order to keep this tempo where it should be, I've got to work really hard. But with Billy, wow, I just fell asleep and just music just came out. You know, wow. it was really like floating backwards. I didn't have to do any work at all. Okay, so you're there for your audition. You first. go, in, you go in there, and, and there he is. You're 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 playing with him, and boom, and you get the gig. Yeah. And they pay you. I liked that I sang because Clive Davis, the record company president, was given the pressure to be more commercial. Clive Davis, you've heard. We, we've, heard we, we've heard of the guy. Um, so you get this huge gig. To me, it was the hugest. I didn't realize that in the real world they of rock and roll, yeah. these guys were like 
nothing. So you know, what we would open for Springsteen, you know, and we'd go, Oh, thankless opening up. So, so what was that? So, what? So, you went on the road with these guys? Yeah, and I loved it because I loved them and I loved I loved the music and you know we it was we we got into some interesting uh, we were part of some interesting bills. We we went on some one tour was like Uriah Heap. We're opening for like Uriah Heap and Cactus. I, I saw both of them back in the day. I might have seen you open for them now Maybe. that I think about it. It could be. Um, yeah, that's an interesting combination. So, so now you're playing on what what size stages are you like? What what what? What's the venue? What are the venues like on that tour? Um, they were you know they were either like college sort of auditorium things mm -hmm. or a lot very often you know since like just post Woodstock, there were a lot of festival scenarios. Right. You know, which is like people forever. So you, you walk out on a stage and as far as the eye can see. Sometimes, yeah, people. except for those college things. It was either like a gym or, or a, a thing. Like and a so auditorium. what was that like the first time you walked out on a festival stage? and? It was breathtaking. It was, you know, it's funny with festivals, like with huge amounts of people, it's way less intimidating than a, than a club. Because, mm. you know, at the club, there's like 12 people in there and they're all looking at you <laughs> and they're right next to you. At, at, at like Live Aid or something, for example, that was maybe the biggest thing I, that I ever wow. looked out and saw with the, the Thompson twins. Oh, there was like, there was like no, there was no room for fear. There was no like element really? that would create fear, you know, because it's too you mad. can't feel anybody. You can't see anybody. It's just mm. about the guys, the people on stage at that point. Because it's just, it's just too big. What's your favorite venue to play? Like I love the Beacon Theater. I know you guys are playing at the Beacon, but like, what's what's as a musician? What what is the most thrilling kind of thrilling? Yeah. What 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 what? Like, I have more of a of a of a love for rooms that sound good. Mm. You know, and in in my experience. You were talking about the Bette Midler uh, uh, national tour, that first one. We played like all these venues in all these towns, but when we got to Philadelphia, it was mm -hmm. the, the, it was called the, oh my God, it's been too many years. I, I want to say, uh, I want to say Great American, but that's San Francisco. Okay. But there was a great venue in Philly, and as far as New York goes, as far as like the satisfaction. You were too young to play the, the Fillmore. I that. just missed the film. I went there as a person. Just missed it. Did you ever go? Um, no, I missed the whole thing. You it, happened, it ended right before I got to New York. Oh. But everybody was talking about it still. Oh, it was an unbelievable Yeah, the Fillmore, the Electric Circus, the mm -hmm. scene. Mm -hmm. I missed all those. those. Those all stopped happening before I got to town. Uh, but, ben Sussman is saying hi. Ben! Excuse hi, me! Ben. What's <laughs> happening with this geezer? <laughs> I'm looking to see who oh, else. I, I, know, I know there are friends of I'm yours so on here, and I've been like, uh, um, all right, well, oh, shit. Well, in New York, the, you know the Bowery Ballroom? Yeah, of course. Man, that is a really, I wish the Fab Faux hadn't outgrown that place. That was our first really cool home. Mm. But that is one of the greatest sounding rooms. Is it? For, even uh, from the stage, but also from the house, from, any, from anywhere in the house. It's just wow. one of those places that either they accidentally got right or it just happened to be a good music uh, place on purpose. I'm not sure how it got to be so satisfying to play there. 
Nice. But when I think of, you know, mm -hmm. to answer your question, it's, it's, a, it's more like a sonic satisfaction factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes good sense. Yeah. And, and then are there, are there certain venues that you feel more connected, because you sing, to the audience because you can actually see them? Well, the smaller, the, the, the more that's the case, yeah. Like at the, the Wiltern, did you see people? Saw. You could see? Okay. Some people, I didn't, you know, from where I was, I couldn't see anybody I knew, which is... Right, we were all, we were all way back, we were further back. Which might be good. Yeah. That might be, that might, you know, take that part of the thing right. out of the equation, like I don't have to entertain that friend of mine, just because, you know... Peter, you're a your guy there. from, I don't know, I was sitting next to Peter. Peter Erskine? Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. So, um... Such a sweet guy, very, <clears throat> great talent. So... No, wrong Peter. Oh. This Peter, it was a, a guitar, per, was a, he supplied you with things, but not drugs, I think. <laughs> I don't think he was a player. I thought he was a, um, um. I missed him. Did I miss him? No, he came backstage. Okay. He, he was in the green room. Um, very, very tall, salt and pepper hair. It almost sounds like uh, Rob, my friend Rob Mailhouse. No, his name was Peter. Who had played drums with, uh. With Keanu Reeves fan, oh, wow. star. Oh wow! And is also a really funny guy and like a character actor kind of guy. You, that was a very fun hang back there yeah. that night. I didn't get to see everybody because you know Jeff Emmerich, God bless his soul, oh. was standing like kind of in the next room, and they were all involved. Everybody wanted to talk to Jeff, and I've talked to him a lot. So talk about Jeff for a minute for those Jeff who Emmerich, don't know. Uh, the man, the legend, just left us. Uh, God. Hours the day ago. after, two days after your gig or something. It was, uh, we are, we gigged on Saturday and mm -hmm. I think I got the news on, I want to say Tuesday night maybe? That's yesterday, Tuesday? I think it was Monday actually. I think it was very soon after your anyway, gig. Anyway, yeah, he had a lecture and then the next day or mm -hmm. night he, he, he passed away suddenly. It was really sad. And, uh, tell, Jeff tell Emmerich is an idol of mine and, and all, of course, anybody who loves Beatle music uh, has been affected by this guy's talent because he was the guy who was sort of the catalyst between John Lennon saying things like, I want, I want my voice to sound like it's coming from a mountaintop and blah, blah, blah. And, and, and he was a guy, and this is what I said to him, one of the, one of the last things we were talking about mm -hmm. that night, the other night, was, uh, was how basically the creative process of the Beatles when they were in the studio was things were moving so fast and the demands were so high and the, 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 the desire to please the Beatles, mm -hmm. the writers especially, mm -hmm. because they, these are the guys envisioning something that you want to make come into fruition and, and be a finished product just the way they're imagining it. Mm -hmm. So you jump over hoops to try to make this happen. And they were asking for things that technically theretofore were, had been thought of as being impossible because the ideas of these things had, hadn't existed, so the need to create ways to get there hadn't yet been invented. So Jeff Emmerich spent all those years basically faking it like to a, a level so high that they pulled these things off. Um, doing tricks like holding up pencils with, with like tapering across the pencils so that because they were out of spools for the tape machines to capture all these pieces of tape they were trying to 
to make sounds with as as a, as an overdub session was happening. Say for that song "Tomorrow Never Knows" uh -huh. we were talking about earlier, and just figuring out ways to make things happen. You know, um, they they just had to get really creative. And Jeff Emmerich was probably one of the most creative uh, and courageous in studio audio engineers ever. Wow. And he found ways to make all these things happen. Yeah. And also, he also took it, would take, you know, he would also anticipate what they were going to mm -hmm. ask for, and he would already be ready to take it to the next level. Wow. He would push uh, faders to the limit way loud, way higher than, uh, than the record company was ever allowing anybody to do. It was <laughs> against all the rules. He'd break all the rules. He'd put the treble up higher for the, for the uh, say, say for instance, for the, you know, the song Nowhere Man has mm -hmm. that really crispy high-end guitar solo. He would push those EQ uh, wow. highs to the limit, and he would just do things. So that it wasn't were even stuff that the, that the Beatles were asking for. He was he was doing this. Well, they were kind of asking for it. They didn't know really how to articulate it I see. because the, the language hadn't even been invented yet. Mm -hmm. You know, they were just inventing it, and going as going. So whatever as they, they would articulate, he would find a way to do. He would figure it out. Wow. He was there to make it happen. He was just as excited about making it happen as he was making them happy. So now when you do something with the Fab Faux as the White Album, and you're doing that second album. The second disc? <laughs> the second disc on that album. Oh my God. I mean, I can't even imagine how long it took you to just figure that, sh I mean, because let's talk did, about Revolution 9. Let's talk about Revolution 9. Because that's the 9. thing. Because that's <laughs> the thing. You did it like exactly. I had just gotten married. Okay. Okay, this is this is all important uh, uh, backstory. I had just gotten married to Sandrine. And we were... We're going to talk about her after. She's show. worth talking about, for sure. We Congratulations on her award that she just yeah. won. Yeah. We'll talk about that. Stay with Revolution. We right we had gotten we had just gotten a house, mm -hmm. and the house had a separate. Uh, we got a, we had gotten a house in Connecticut together, and the house had a separate uh, sort of garage building where I'd set up a studio mm -hmm. to do my work, and we had just decided to to do Revolution Revolution Nine. We'd heard a band do it, and it was so piss poor that it really angered me. Oh, I was really mad. That could be a real mess if it was it, not done well. But it was a great it was a great ass kicker to make me want to do it right. Mm -hmm. So so Frank Ignello, one of the Fab Folk mm -hmm. original members, we've been together for 20 years, same five guys. Which we'll talk about too. That's hard to believe. New York City having a band. Unbelievable. And maybe the Ramones are the only band that can even come near that. But anyway. No, because so, they kept dying. But anyway. So Frank and I we, 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 we set our minds to finding out what all the, the elements in Revolution 9 were, are. What, you know, what the, what's the backwards piece of Sibelius, this, this classical piece, this Bach thing, you know, like what is the thing and what does it sound like forwards and how do we make it the same length so that it comes out backwards sounding like, like the Beatles did when they were doing all this experimenting. Mm -hmm. And... We found out, you know, we researched every little element, like what are the spoken words that people are saying. So the idea was to have a way to, for one or two guys to trigger some of these uh, classical pieces and sounds, have other guys 
physically play the, the parts that you hear being played on the revolution. Because you're not playing an instrument during. Not me. Yeah, you're not. You're, but you're, our drummer Rus Pagano is playing a little bit of bass, and right. Jimmy Vivino is playing a little bit of guitar, and and Jack Petruzzelli is playing a few things on piano mm -hmm. where where it's appropriate where it's you know appropriate to replicate this piece. So the idea was like, okay, this is this is a lot of stuff, and it could really be messy. And how do I you know how do we script this for five guys? And Sandrine, who had been in the house while well, I'm out in the garage, mm -hmm. thinking to herself, did I just get married? <laughs> is, there, is there a man in my world? I don't seem to see anybody. <clears throat> and it was a drag for her, you know? How anyway, long did it take you I to was figure out there. This, this had to take a while. I was on my own out there trying to figure this out, like, you know, oh, I can do this, oh, the guy. Meanwhile, it wasn't until she got involved that it really started to happen. Oh. So we figured out a way to script this thing. And I don't like to give this, these secrets away, but every page is a minute. Every line is 10 seconds. Wow. Everybody's roles, whether it's spoken line or to trigger a sample or whatever, is color-coded. Wow. So you can just really follow it along and do your, your part. And it ends up almost... I don't know how it felt to you, but to it me was, it feels like some kind of odd Monty Python sketch. That's a good way to put it. I mean, I, it, it <laughs> was... From hell. It, well, it was just so... It was not only audibly fascinating, but it was visually fascinating to watch you guys and Jim Broderick oh, running around and doing like all kinds of... I don't know what... He kept popping the, up in different way, places. By the way, the pre Right, he's unbelievable. <laughs> the uh, the pre-recorded Yoko Ono spoken lines. Uh-huh. It's that Sandrine. Oh, <laughs> nice. We have Sandrine, virtual Sandrine <laughs> recorded that she gets triggered from. Excellent. And if you've ever been triggered, you know just how painful that can be. <laughs> well, I've been triggered many times. Oh! Many people. All right, so, yeah, that was amazing. Um, all right, so so let's go back. So so you're you're tra you're touring with Dreams. How? What's the next thing? Is the next thing Bette Midler? What happens after that? Dreams, um... <clears throat> Dream, the, the drummer, Billy Cobham, left Dreams for Mahavishnu. Mm -hmm. And who could blame him because Clive Davis was pressuring this really innovative jazz rock fusion band to be a top 40 band, really. That's what he, oh. that's what, all he wanted from us was, was, top, was hits. Wow. And this is not the kind of band you, hmm. you try to get hits out of. But right. he, he forced us to, back our, our second record, he sent us down to Memphis to have uh, Steve Cropper produce the band and you know we were doing Covers of things like "Medicated Goo" by uh, by Traffic, and you know it's just, it's just like oh, I can, mm -hmm. you could see why Billy Cobham had his foot out the door. Mm -hmm. So um, the band eventually, in the process of trying to replace Billy Cobham, mm -hmm. eighty-six drummer auditions later, finally realized that it was over. So we finally the band split up, <clears throat> and I was a guy who was doing well in in Miami, had no. No intentions of moving to New York. I never thought about it uh -huh. until that phone call came in to come and audition for Dreams from Randy Brecker. I hadn't thought about um, anything. You know, I was just happy living at my my parents' house. I had my little room with all the beautiful uh, Frank Zappa, Phi <laughs> Zappa Crappa posters on the wall, and black lights and stuff. Hall too. Mm. Unbelievable. Um, so I yeah. so I was perfectly content. I was thinking, okay, so it's over, and I'm going back to Miami. And, and how so. old are you when this is going on? You're still. By this kid. time, I'm 
I might have even been like 20 by now. Okay. Because I was 18 when I came to audition for Dreams mm -hmm. in 71. So I, 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 was, I was just about to, to book my flight back to Miami, and one of the guys in the band was a guitar player, Bob Mann, mm -hmm. a very dear friend of mine, who had a house that he was splitting with a studio drummer named Alan Schwartzberg in, in Nyack. And they said, oh no, you're not moving back to Miami. You're gonna live with, in our house, we're gonna put you up in the attic, and we're gonna get you to work. And I was like, oh, okay, great. You know, I, I didn't have any connections. I'd seen were the studio. Were you good about work. saving your money while you were? Oh, probably not. No. I think so. Okay. What money? You weren't making money. But you weren't making money with them? No. So anyway, so I, 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 uh, I had seen these guys, I accompanied these guys to sessions, so I knew that there was a world up in New York oh. of the session players okay. going from, 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 from studio to studio like all day long. Mm -hmm. Fresh piece of music, fresh band. You walk into the new room, you're creating something new that's never been heard before, and then you walk out of there and do, do it again an hour later. And I thought, man, I could see that this is a very sewn up thing. And I never had any intention of expecting me to be able to break through and get into the door of that scene. Uh -huh. But as I was about to get on back on the plane, mm -hmm. these guys said, we'll get you work. And they sure enough did. Bob was arranging, uh, arranging uh, uh, for, for jingle houses, and he called me in to sing a Kentucky Fried, get a bucket of chicken, <laughs> finger licking good, that kind of stuff. Nice. So next thing I know, I'm doing these national spots. And, and you're and doing it mostly as, as a vocalist rather than well, a Both. Both. First play, mm -hmm. and hey, the guy can sing, so give him a shot, you know. And then the producers learned about what my limitations or talents were in the singing department, so they started to hire me to do all kinds of singing and playing. And then that led to other, you know, associate arrangers that work for those same jingle mm -hmm. houses, besides mm -hmm. Bob Mann, to start using me for their things. They would start thinking of things. And are you also playing out at night? Are you playing the clubs, or are you not doing I'm that doing stuff? Everything. You're doing everything. Everything. Everything, okay. except that. Um, so about the Bette Midler thing, mm -hmm. when I got the call to to go do that, I was already doing some jingles. Okay. Did I skip anything? No, I think you're right on track. I mean, let's, let's, let me good. just give Don. I Gro think we're being Don Gromick is the guy who was Bette Midler's second keyboard player, even though Barry Manilow was the MD right. and acoustic piano player. Don Gromick was playing organ. Okay. And maybe some other electronic keyboards at the time for the Bette Midler thing. Maybe string synthesizers or whatever, whatever filling in the blanks. But everybody trusted Don's word and musicality, and Don said, you don't have to audition anybody, I got the guy for you. So without an audition, I'm in Bette Midler's band, right? Now Just, wait, now Bette, now Bette is, she's a somebody, but she's a little somebody. She at had this point. Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. Right, so she, she had, had a hit. She had some. <clears throat> and a big following, mostly yeah. gay following. Yes, the bathhouse. Which was, yeah. you know, incredibly, completely worshipped. Yes. The divine Miss In. As we all did. I did too. I thought she would, I still think she's unbelievable. Yeah. Pretty and, amazing. And, you know, I love her to death to this day. But uh, so the, so the, that thing was happening, but we're out on the out, out in America now. We're we're flying from town to town and I'm already a studio guy. Mm -hmm. And I see how the, the studio world, like I see how it opened up for me, how it was possible 
that a certain guy couldn't make a session, but we still need a guy, so let's call whoever. And that's when I got my foot in the door as a bass player, because say Tony Levin couldn't do a thing, or, or some other established studio bassist couldn't do a thing, and I saw how, how dangerous it was to not be able to do a thing. So if you're going out on the road, and you stop doing, you're, st you're stopping available, does somebody else come in and fill that slot? And how do you get back in when you get back to town? I, I didn't even give that, I didn't entertain that thought for one second. I would fly back in for the smallest little thing. Really? Right back on the road. For really? Same for the gig. Yeah. At my expense. Wow. Because I saw how Because you saw that, that, you could, that you couldn't yes. ride. Who's wow. going to get a second chance at, at being in this established thing? You know? So you value that you knew to value that session work of like that was sacrosanct to not. That was the, the thing I was so excited about because that is a look like money. It looked like uh, you know uh, the thing that I love the most: variety. Mm. Getting to do everything. I love when the rock guys think I'm a jazz guy. And I love when jazz players think I'm a rock guy. I love that. And your Grammy is actually be... jazz, right? Didn't you yeah, it is. Yeah. But I never wanted to be pigeonholed because mm -hmm. I just like too many things. And I thought if I get thought of as any one thing, well, here I am in a Beatles band. But yeah, but that is an be... exception to the rule. But, but you played, you played on... one on... thing I'll let myself... You played on Letterman for all of those years and you played with everybody. You played we were all probably... music. Yes, and throughout the commercials, it, it dawned on me that we were probably the most visible cover band ever, <laughs> for the longest amount of time. For the longest amount of time. Because that's essentially all we were doing was covers all those years for thirty-three to thirty years. Well, you but you're playing Except behind. Play, yeah, you're playing yeah, behind but, artists. But most of the gig was going into commercial, coming out of commercial, and that was all just covers. Wow, that's crazy. That's crazy. But you backed up a lot of people. Sure. Okay, so so go back. So how did you get the bet the bet gig? So you didn't even have to audition. You just That's walked it. you in. Yep. There's bet. There's Barry Manilow. Loved it every night. It was incredible. Um, Coming out to L.A. was really cool. We'd see Lucille Ball in the audience. We'd see Cher in the audience. Wow. Kirk Douglas, Red Fox, and just crazy like especially we played the Universal Amphitheater for. We had a run there, and that was just. Drug heaven, debauchery heaven. And now this is when Barry is Bet's family. Yeah, it's before he he's Barry. Right, unknown as a as a artist. So did you stay connected to him when he started to become like Mahoga Barry? Like um, yes, yes. We're still in touch. Wow. I love the guy. Wow, he's the greatest. It's he's just amazing. Guy. And he's the real deal. He really knows orchestration. He just knows Right, he's music. not just a no, pop no, he, star. That was all kind of accidental. Really? In a way. How, how, well, how, did, he always, break, really how did he break through? He blew yeah. a couple of guys. And he, <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> he's Barry Manilow. Well, he's I know, but how did, how did he, how did he break songs? away from his bit and start his own thing? How did that happen? I guess in the... You know, during her thing, did she give him, did he, he got sing, himself a record deal. Did he sing any songs in that show with her? Um, actually, yeah, he did have a little slot in the middle of the show. Like, okay. I think he would do like... When she would change or something? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm just remembering this now. I forgot okay. about that. Yeah, he had like a two or three song segment. There you go. 
stuff. Good negotiator. So, good. okay, so after bed, so what happens after bed? What year is that? What, when are you with Oh, bed? I have to tell you something that yeah. happened. Yeah, really yeah. Quickly. At the Universal Amphitheater, one night, <clears throat> I had seen the movie, um, I'd seen the movie American Graffiti. Remember that movie? Oh yes. So and I had never seen a bunch of big. Mackenzie Phillips might be watching. Could be. Could happen. Yeah. Well, um, I had never seen a bunch of like really famous people, but I I never forget a face. Okay. And maybe I don't know the name connected with the face, but one night we're playing Universal <laughs> Amphitheater. I can't believe you said that name. Sitting, oh, is this this? Is she in your store? I'm, no. I'm sitting. I'm, I'm sorry. Sitting, I'm sitting at the. The music's in front of me on the music stand. And, yeah. And I see this chick in the audience and I'm thinking, oh my God, I can't remember where I know her from, but she's such a pain in the ass. I don't want her to notice me. <laughs> so I'm hiding behind the stand all night. Remember the character that Mackenzie played in that yes. movie? Yes. She was like this she was pesky like, little yeah, sister yeah, 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 that yeah. climbed into the guy's car. Call the man's thing. car, yeah. And I couldn't put it together. I just so thought, you just thought oh of her my God, pesky. I know her. Oh my God, I got a voice. She's going to see me. It's going to be a horrible night. Oh my God. And then later on, I met her. She was the sweetest, greatest I person. love her. I love you, Mac. I we love her, love her, love her. That's it. I'm sorry. I ruined your whole story. No, of no, all no, the but people in that funny, movie. Though. Well, because really she's the reason that we have these. Is, is that because right? she came and read from her book, and all, we were all crying when she read from her book. And so Rick Smokey, my fabulous guy, somebody said, have him make us tissue boxes. And he did. And it's all because That's of Mac. Yeah. It's all because of her. The last um, time I saw her was we did John Phillips' last album, and she came and visited us in the studio. Wow. How about that? Wow. It was called Phillips 66. Wow. Um, he was, and it was very tender and touching, you know, the whole thing. But they're, they're, they're reconnecting and stuff. What, what year was that? When, how long was that? A long time ago. A long time ago. Yeah. So you, but you find. How did you end up playing with Ace Freely? I mean, like, okay, so you play with you Bet. Know, yeah, uh, Eddie, Eddie, uh, uh, Eddie Kramer is a friend of mine. He's, a, he's okay. the engineer that did all Hendrix records, and he was producing the record. Okay. And that was the my sort of wake up call into the world of Anton Fig. Okay, and Anton kind of used to play at my club with Scully, his band Scully. Who was in that band? Um, I don't even um, know about that. Yeah, Scully. Um, I knew about oh, Spider. And I know right. he, a British, a British. He's fabulous, and he's my Facebook friend. And I'm sorry, I forget. I'm spacing on his name. It'll come to me. Scully was Anton's like big original project for like mm. years, all through the '80s and early '90s. Anton played like every venue I played. He is a working play. musician, Anton. And that's how I also met Ace through Anton at a party. Um, so how did you? So through Anton, you connected with Ace. Is that what happened? Yep. Yeah, no, through Eddie Kramer. Oh, through Eddie who Kramer. Was the producer or engineer. So Anton and Ace were playing together. Um, I th think I don't know if they had had any history before that moment, mm -hmm. but they obviously subsequently did more records together because because Anton joined his band yeah. after that mm -hmm. and did the the Fraley's Comet or whatever it was called mm -hmm. that project. And um, my friend Gordon Gebert introduced me to. Ace did one of my okay. So now, so you go from bet. You don't go from bet to, to Ace. What's I went. Let me think about this. Oh, you know, I think before bet, I was in Horace Silver's band actually for a little while, for like a year. But anyway, from bet, you know, actually, Barry's thing started to take off, and we 
Did you play with Barry? I was, yeah, I was in Barry's first touring band, first oh. national tour, again. Oh, wow. So that was cool. I played on most of his hits in, in those days, like Mandy. And so you're playing on those hits and all those women going crazy over Barry, that whole scene, you were part of that whole... It was, it was kind of in between being unknown and known, so there were some, there were a few awkward moments. One time we were opening for Freddie Hubbard at Paul's Mall in, in, in Boston, Massachusetts, and it was like the most, um, it was the scariest. How so? Because it was Freddie's audience, and Barry was an unknown. So Freddie's audience came there to hear some serious jazz. Okay. And Barry's up on stage going, and now I'd like to do a, med a medley of all the very strange commercials that I've played on. We call it the VSM. It goes something like this. You deserve a break today. And the audience is like, where is Freddie? Oh we God. want Freddie. Wow. Anyway, so that was that was not his fault, of course. That no, was, and one day those manager. people cursed themselves for being so short-sighted, I'm sure. I don't know. No, jazz people probably not. Okay, <laughs> so... people can be like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, very so, few become uh, very young. <laughs> That's probably true. Let's see the serious, like, you know, these are practically bebop guys almost, yeah. that kind of taste, which I love equally as much as any. I love great pop music. I love jazz, like crazy. And What's been some of your favorite music to, to play on? Like, you've played with so many people. I just, Ira Bullock, know, oh my God. Every... Every endeavor, every project is, is scary. And I love being scared. And I love the feeling of trying to figure it all out. It's always like fresh to me. Every, every, every has there ever thing. been a failure, Will? Has, has there ever been something that just, well, because we, right, we, we, we learn, we challenges or would help us grow and push us forward. Was there anything that you felt that you just, was there anything ever that you couldn't do? Um, no. You know, people think I'm a good reader. Yeah. Which I, I'm glad they think that. But the truth of the matter is that I'm one of those people that when everybody's telling jokes before the session starts, I'm the guy filling in all the blanks on the music mm -hmm. paper. So that, so I, I actually got this reputation for being a really good reader. Mm -hmm. And I do have a, uh, the ability to read rhythms pretty well because rhythms, even though I started out as a trumpet player, French horn player. That was treble clef, and now I play in the bass clef stuff. Mm -hmm. The treble clef stuff, the rhythms are the same mm -hmm. as the bass clef stuff. That never changes. So, so whatever note you're playing, the rhythms are, are applied to any of those notes. Okay. So the notes change, but the rhythms start, you start to see them over and over again. And, and once you sort of learn how to read rhythms, then the notes are the, kind of the only thing you have to think about as much. And in my case, uh, you know, in music, the, the music staff has five lines, right? Mm -hmm. There's only five lines. It's when it gets to the, to the notes that are outside of those five lines that become ledger lines, they call it. They have these extension lines that come out above the staff. And when that gets really far away from the staff, that's when the pencil comes out. And the of those notes like, it's a G, that's a A, that's it's a brother, but here in the face, you know. And the jokes have been told, and now, like, you know, the loner can read all of a sudden. So, so it seems. How, yeah, um, can I, like, talk you into, like, uh, pulling out that, that face there? And, like, sure. Doing a little thing for us with that face there? 
Rob? I just wanted to make one point. Wow, you're good at that. You can. Okay. I can't find your assistant. Where did he go? Where did he go? <laughs> it's like yeah, almost live. You know, what happened? That, that, I know. That, yes. I didn't even realize that. That's a step. Right. Right. That was, was it worth it for that? I've been that, waiting that. like an hour. <laughs> you got it in. You got it in. I love it. That's important. That is important. We only do what's important. <laughs> So this is a bass guitar. Wow. This is how I usually make most of my living these days. Well, we'll have to talk about what, we'll have to talk about what you're doing. Are you still doing session work, Will? Of course. Okay. That's, sessions still your, are, that's still your thing. Sessions have become a thing where it's it's no longer people in a room together. It's mostly, you know, placing a part on, on a on a You're sitting by yourself on a project that's already thin, like, you know. Elements have been recorded already, and it's, a, it's kind of a lonely version of what it used to be. Yeah, because mm -hmm. it used to be the hang. You know, they just, people used to get together before the session, after the session, and during the session, and it was like one big family kind of a thing. But it's actually become. Did you know P.F. Sloan? I know the name. Yeah, Eve of Destruction, and uh, he he wrote like everything. But he was oh, part of he was that. part of the Skeleton Crew, and he wrote Secret Agent Man. But, but it was he, recorded by. Yeah. Very but yeah, bizarre. but yeah, but it was PF's song, but also PF was part of that skeleton crew and he was the voice of like Jan and Dean and like all these that we thought we were hearing them, but it was actually wow. PF singing all so those. He songs was kind of a, he a was, wrecking crew guy. He, he was, yeah, he was a wrecking crew guy. Did I just say skeleton crew? Yeah, that was another band. Alright, but anyway, uh, yeah. So so when you when you write music, when you write your stuff, how do you write your stuff? Um, I usually hear it in my my mind first, usually. And are you hearing it? You're not hearing it on. You're... Well, if I if I have a bass in my hand, like yeah, and I have enough time to like shut down things and and, and just listen to the music that's coming from wherever it comes from. Okay. Which is sort of like having a real blank slate and not being distracted by by you know by the neon signs of life that are flashing, saying pay attention to me over here and my phone going off or TV's on and all the stuff that we like. Right. I love TV, I love all that stuff, but it's really a drug. Yes, it is and for me. And it's unless you're a thief, it's not making music. Like I like to I like to make music that's not derivative of you know, that doesn't come from somebody else's idea, mm -hmm. let's say. I see Cliff Jones, my man's over here. Yes, what brand bass? Well, this is known as the uh, the Danacaster, and it's I love this. It's it's a Nashville guy that makes this. It looks like a Fender jazz bass, but it's not, and it behaves like a Fender jazz bass, except in some ways better. So, Beacon the Theater loves rock New York City. Yes, love rocks New York City. Okay, March you're going to be part of that. Okay, it says the twentieth here. Is, is, did he get it wrong? Oh, somebody's Who's asking saying? for somebody's asking for a good Hiram story. Um, Hiram, I'll tell you my favorite Hiram story. This is just about me and Hiram, though. That's um, okay. That's, that's Hiram and I were so like spiritually connected mm -hmm. that when whenever we got on stage, something amazing would happen. And and for me, the, the thing that made it happen was the fact that Hiram was so 
generous of, of, of spirit and mm -hmm. also so talented. He's one of the greatest guitar players that ever lived, I think, maybe. Mm -hmm. But he had this giant vocabulary. He's the only, and I said this at his, his, his uh, memorial, he's the only black guy I ever knew that, could, that, that knew every Crosby, Stills, and Nash lyric, every James <laughs> Taylor lyric, every standard jazz standard lyric, and could sit at either a piano or a guitar and sing and play wow. any of these pieces. Of music. Wow. It was amazing. Wow. He was amazing. So because he had so much music available to him, mm -hmm. to get on stage with a guy who's kind and open-hearted. You played with him a long time. A lot. Yeah. Many, many albums, mm -hmm. many, many gigs. Mm -hmm. But he, he was the kind of guy you could, you could play anything and he would turn it into music. So you could play your lamest shit on stage in, in the middle of a jam and he would hear it and he would just give it validity because he had so much to work with. You know, he had such a huge, um, yeah, uh, just, you know, supply of, of ideas and, you know, reference points and things. He, he Play played, something. Okay, here's a song that I, I was, I was actually, I, I, I may mess it up because I haven't played it in a really long time, but we were know. talking about like, you know, where certain things come from and where mm -hmm. the ideas, and I was sitting by myself one time and I think, I think my sort of go-to, like a lot of times I try to be jolly in front of people, but, but when I was alone this one time, I got so sad. And I just started writing this song called, I Know Too Much About Sadness. And it, and it came from just a little thing that was just like, and I was doing this. Thousand. Mm -hmm. 
Sing a beat into a into the iPhone, you know. <laughs> Anything, and usually I will just let it sit there for years and never finish it. I have a million unfinished ideas, mm. and I get inspiration all day long. And I just really have a tough time pushing it through to become a finished song. It's really hard, yeah. especially words. Mm -hmm. Words is hard. Do you do you write? Did, did you write poetry? Do you ever do that? Like what? And what comes for? Does the, does the music come first? It, not necessarily. No. Okay. Sometimes you know, I'll, I'll, I I have this thing uh, people call echolalia. Echolalia. Oh, people, my son has that. <laughs> yeah. So something suggests something else, and what, what I is will, that? It's 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 uh, interpreting. A, a spoken thing and turning it into sort of what you want it to be in a way that sounds almost the same, right? Can you give, me, that, an, can you give me an well, example? What, what? Echolalia and autism generally is not having your own language, but like if I said, uh, Will, would you like an Allegra? And you would <laughs> say, instead of saying, yes, I'd love one, you'd say, Will, would you like an Allegra? Oh. So echolalia is basically heard, not having your own language, but repeating what is said to you like a parrot. Oh, okay. That's kind of the same thing. Kind of. Okay. So in other words, it's almost like, for me, like puns happen almost naturally. And it's because of something reminding me of something else. Sort of. <laughs> Interesting. My, my interpretation of something. Okay. All right. Some people have called me a cunning linguist. <laughs> oh my! That's a gift. Um, oh, um, 
So, so let's talk about your wife for a minute. So she got an award. Uh, Are you changing the subject? I am. Well, Connie Lynn was so sorry, but I went right there. <laughs> My wife is the greatest. So I She's saw the greatest her. thing about me. That's lovely. By How long have you been married? 18 years. Nice. I know. Seems like about a minute. I know. I thought you just got married. I think I just did too. And so, and so she did a beautiful, I, I saw the, 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 the have you seen her video. Book? I have not seen the book, but I saw the the, the video image. Presentation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not even the tip of the iceberg. Okay, so what she did was explain explain what she's done because it's she, extraordinary. You, you know, this is the kind of thing when somebody first of all, her story is uh, she's from France. Mm -hmm. She comes. She decides to come to America. Mm -hmm. She has no gig. She has no friends. She has no no money. She doesn't speak the language. Wait a minute. How old is she when she does she, this? Oh, man, I don't know. I don't is, know. She a, is she a girl? I don't know how old she, she is now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but she's really young. I'm, I'm going to say she she was probably a, a teenager. Okay. Um, so she comes here with, no, with nothing. Nothing. What's her plan? She has. She, she wants to. She wants to be. I think that she has got sort of like this idea of what America is based on movies and stuff. Okay. That's her. That's sort of her go-to reference. It, and until she, until the rude awakening of actually being in America. But she, yeah, she figures out a way she, to get to Florida, mm -hmm. and she doesn't, uh, as I said, doesn't have a, a, a place to stay or anything. So she sleeps on the beach. Yes, Miami Beach. Who and would do she's this? gorgeous. How much courage does it take to leave your entire world to come to a new place with? Without any of the the safety nets available, I cannot, I cannot, imagine, I cannot imagine. She's got no like way to actually land a gig because she needs you need papers for that. She can't get a driver's license, but she figured that out. She slowly learned the language the hard way. She thought she knew English when she got here, but she, you know, people are very. Uh, I do the same thing when when the accents on the wrong syllable, mm -hmm. they don't know what the person is really saying mm -hmm. sometimes, and mm -hmm. there was a lot of that in her life, and she would embarrass herself quite a bit until until she finally realized what she was doing wrong and then she would you know she's got a huge vocabulary mm -hmm. it's brilliant i mean she's mm -hmm. really studied in latin so she knows about the roots of all the words and that gives her a lot of a lot of tools to use that combined with her common sense to figure things out in mm -hmm. language and she mm -hmm. reads all day long every day mm -hmm. really well read mm -hmm. anyway after a while she she finally like Decided that she got, you know, she got herself sort of established and somehow moved to New York. And I think that was also maybe through acting mm -hmm. somehow through the act. She was still an act, actor when I met her, mm -hmm. but she was working at, like as actors do, she was working at a restaurant, mm -hmm. standing bar and and serving, you know, as a, as a waitress. And it was at a place that I used to go to a lot because it was a. Uh, it was a centrally located place that was right in and among, you know, like a half a block from the Letterman show, a half a block from the rehearsal studios so everybody used to SIR, half a block from recording studios. So people would gather there. So it was kind of a musician mm -hmm. and some somewhat actor, somewhat uh, um, advertising world hang. Mm -hmm. And people from Reuters would go there too, as a, you know, as, as their, their hang. Mm -hmm. So she got to know all kinds of people from there. But I went there because uh, 
you know, it was convenient for me and, and I would even take dates there sometimes. And you know, chicks love that apparently because we're now married at 18. No, it wasn't, that wasn't the reason she didn't. But she didn't hold it against me, I'll, I'll say that much. For whatever reason, that was very kind. What, were you already talking to her and kind of having a thing? Talking, and then she was like, she smoked, and she was French, and she was an actress, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and the way our relationship grew was so organic, it, it snuck up on me. I didn't see it coming. It wasn't the love at first sight, anything mm -hmm. like that. It was just like, wow. Mm -hmm. The more we talked, the more we in, start to interconnect, and mm -hmm. it became like a very real thing. I wish I could teach how, how to do this because honestly, I had given up completely on trying to find somebody. It was, it was not until then that real love was allowed to happen. I honestly had just said, okay, I get it. All my relationships have been a total farce. It's always ended up a disaster. It's, I'm just gonna be Uncle Will to everybody. And that's fine, I'm okay with me, you know. I get it, that's fine. What, what's the point of How did Uncle Will start? I wanted to ask you that. Ralph McDonald, the great studio percussion player, Ralph McDonald. So okay. I Uncle Will. Just Uncle like Will. this? Yeah. Okay, and it stopped. Because he was that kind of, really charming, personable, personable guy, mm -hmm. and a great friend. Mm -hmm. So and it just stuck, and then, and then I literally became Uncle Will when my brother had his first kid. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's get to the, uh, the book that just uh, has been, was it the book, not the video presentation that she won the award for, correct? Right, the book. And the, book and the, and the premise of it. New, okay, New She goes to public places throughout the world, uh, all alone, She's like the... You, uh, I, okay, I wanted to know this. You're not like hiding somewhere. Oh, you she know, is alone. Let me tell you that this girl is so driven. I mean, this is the same courageous person that Slept on found herself yeah. at the shores of America without, without any, you know, without all the tools to do it. But she just had herself, basically. It makes sense that she could do this. So the new Person like are, that, you're yes. not allowed to... First of all, you're not allowed to tell her not to do it. And you're not allowed to really worry about her because mm -hmm. she's got this amazing awareness. When I used to go to that restaurant, I loved it because the service was incredible. And I never realized until she stopped working there that, that it was because of her. Mm -hmm. Even though there were other weight people, mm -hmm. it was her overseeing the whole room mm -hmm. and being aware enough mm -hmm. to tell, hey, table seven, you're screwing it up over the beginning. You know? Mm -hmm. Okay, so talk about the new All of a sudden, the second. restaurant sucked yeah. when she lived there. But when wow. she left there, the, the restaurant was like a place that I avoided. Mm. So Nudescape, so tell what they are. She goes out, I go to sleep, <laughs> it often happens at night, and she, she hates to miss a full moon, so she has a calendar when all the full moons are coming. Because mm -hmm. she loves to get this mysterious, like odd uh, feeling of, of, of what happens when, when a, a full moon lit night uh, and combined with a, uh, with a long exposure on the camera makes this weird, like, is it day, is it night, you know. So she, uh, you know, like, we'll be in a place, and I'll go to sleep, like, one o'clock, and she'll go, I'm going to let, you know, after you sleep for, like, I'm going to read, and then for, like, an hour or two, I'm going to go out and do my thing. Mm -hmm. And I'll wake up the next morning, and she will have already completely taken care of her thing, and I've slept through the whole through the whole ordeal. And what she's doing is she's taking pictures of herself. She goes out with a with yeah, just herself and a camera and a tripod and a ten second timer. And she sets it up, sets up the lighting, or if it's a full moon uh, lit night, she'll just uh, 
use that as the light. And she's, you know, done these photos in front of like really public places. One of my favorites is right in front of the Beverly Hills Hotel sign. You know, when you're going down Sunset. So she's oh, new, and, and she's, she's new. She's new. She's new. She's, They're new. She rips her clothes off, yeah. runs in front of the camera, and she's goes new. back, and puts, you know, she's like one of these pervert guys, you know, but, but she's it's just the overcoat but she, and but, naked but, underneath. But she's, but she's protective of her body. It's not like she's flaunting her body no, it's in not these about pictures sex. at all, at all. No, it's she's, and, and I love the, the copy mind, that went along with it. It's that this is her greatest inhibition. Yes, to and show herself. In her mind, she's representing us, not herself. It's not she doesn't see it as being about her. She she has a whole thing about Facebook and about privacy. She's not on Facebook. Mm -hmm. She thinks that privacy is one of the last greatest uh, assets that we don't have anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and she really is into preserving that. I'm going to put the link to that to the well. I I saw the, the video uh, oh, that you. she did with it that that links to the book, I guess. But um, it's very powerful oh, to see these images it. and also to hear her tell. This, that is her voice. I'm right. assuming yes. to hear her tell the story of yes. why she's doing it and how she's doing it. Amazing. Um, and I'm just looking. We've been talking for two. Oh we've my. been talking for like for forever. So you were saying so so. They won't know what it is. It's okay. We'll get away with it. They won't know what it is if they're not hearing the vocal. So, so Will, what, what's what's on the plate coming up? What, what what haven't you done that you still want to do? I'm doing. I have a lot of challenges ahead of me because I'm I've been MDing a bunch of really big uh, shows. Like what? Uh, Musical well, directing for those of you. I, I would say uh, one of the ones that I really love doing. Well, I love them all, but. Uh, it's a, a benefit for God's love to we deliver, oh. which is called Love Rocks NYC, mm -hmm. and we've mm -hmm. done two so far, okay. and they've been just gangbusters successful. Like who playing on them? Can I just look at the list? Yeah, yeah, look it, at the list. It, there are so many people. Last well, year, last year, man. Cliff Jones says I tried doing the same nude book, didn't go over uh. well. <laughs> <laughs> hey, practice makes perfect. Oh, that's very So funny. last year we had trombone shorty, Patty Smythe, uh, Andre Day, Donald Fagan, Gary Clark Jr., David Hidalgo, and uh, Doyle Bramhall, Nona Hendricks, Alan Stone, Nora Jones, Amy Lou Harris, Lucinda Ooh, wow. Williams, Billy Gibbons, Ann Williams, wow. Mavis Staples, Tash Neal, Mark Cohn, the Bacon Brothers, Jimmy Bond, Valerie Simpson, wow. Keith Richards. Holy shit. This and is a big, it's well, a where, lot of Where is this going to be? Where this happens this? at the Beacon. At the Beacon. And it's a fun And it's a, one, it's a one night thing? One night thing. Okay. And this is a big fundraiser. And well. this next year we're planning already because it, you have to plan like way in advance. It's a lot, a lot of work. And I also got this, this lovely thing. This, there's an organization called Little Kids Rock that I love. Okay, what's that? Guys, mm -hmm. It was started by a, a wonderful sort of a Peter Pan kind of guy named David Wish. Dave Wish is from one of the most violent cities in America. It's, it's somewhere in California. I can't remember the name of the town. But he grew Watts. up there. No, no worse. Oh, oh okay. Uh, it's a place. It's so poor. It's so poor that he had in his heart that he wants to get music musical instruments and instruction into the hands of kids that could, first of all, could fall off the rails 
because they had nothing else better to do than to be street jerks. Uh -huh. You know, just violence or whatever the lowest thing they could do to survive. But just because they didn't have another option in, in their in mind mm -hmm. for, for them as, as part of their life. Mm -hmm. So he found that when you put music in people's lives, it changes them greatly. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful thing and they, they raise all this money and they get all these instruments provided and the education that goes with it. And, and these start out as like after school programs and a lot of times they work their way into the curriculum, which is I America went to these a, days. I went to a thing where he was, this was presented, there's a, a film that goes with this program. Sure. Yes, and I, yes, okay, this is fantastic. So yeah, so what do you have to do director with this? for that. Wow. Also, every year. It's a concert, it's a fundraiser. It's taking place at the PlayStation Theater this year on November 8th. And when's your, um, your Fab Faux gig? At the Beacon. That one is November 3rd. We're going to do a George Harrison 75th birthday concert. And it's oh. just so spectacular. We have like a six piece choir, singers, and you know, you'll see Jim Bojo will be there. He's amazing. Again. And our, our resident harpist and other multi instrumentalist, Erin Hill. I don't know if you know her, but she's fantastic too. We'll have our, our hogshead horns and our cream tangerine strings. And uh, we've been talking to Olivia about it. We're gonna put part of the proceeds towards the Material World Foundation, which is George's foundation, George and Olivia's. Sounds pretty wonderful. And other things, I'm working on a brand new festival that's gonna start in Tokyo this next year, in 2019, that's gonna be kinda of cool. So we're building that festival, I'm the musical director of that thing too. And so there's still session work and there's still the FABFO going around and do you, do you miss not having the TV, the, the Letterman gig every I night? think I'd be greedy to say that I wanted any more than I already had. Mm -hmm. I think I, I did you it. You had I did a that. long run. I did that one. You did that one. That was one. a cool one. You did that one. <laughs> that happened, as they would say. <laughs> well, that happened. <laughs> well, sure well I, I um, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a long time coming. We've been talking thank about you. this for I, a long time. I'm such time. a fan of the show that you this show that you do, no matter what you're going to call it, it's the same. It is. It's exactly it's the, the same. same. Yeah, it's but the same. But I, I loved the road taken, and I loved the, the game changers, and I, and I look forward to all the episodes, and you do a great job. Thank you so much. Yeah. And it's been uh, just an absolute mm -hmm. treat. And uh, so look for Willie in all of these things that he's doing. I'll put a bunch of links on the show so people can find you. Next week, we're going to be back with Bob Castle. Which I just want to say for those of you who don't know, Bob did uh, the living room. He played when we have women who write. There's 50 women in here, and people just play Bob. over there. Bob did it by himself. It is uh, in the top five of all time women who write performances that has ever happened. Still to this day, every it is the number one video that I get. I get comments every single week. Those castles are beyond. Bob is beyond, beyond the beyond, and, yes. and that is one of the most entertaining videos. It, it's got over 50,000 hits on it, and people just keep hitting on it and hitting on it and hitting on it. And he's, so he's going to be with us. I um, saw the Cow Schools on tour this summer, and it was just amazing. You saw the Happy Together tour? Yeah. Yeah, fun, really fun. And they, they're the cream. My friend Ronnie Dante was, was And Howard Kalen, if you're watching, Howard sat it out this year. We love you, man. Yeah, we missed Howard. you and love you. Howard, Howard was actually watching Women Who Write this afternoon. He was watching last week's Women Who Write. He wrote to me on LinkedIn. Um, but anyway, so, and Howard did an amazing set in this living room. 
and, and that's another thing we want to get you back for, is actually to play some music for us. Um, could do. My wicked, yeah, could we, do. Yeah, we could do that. We could figure that out. Thank you so much for Thank doing you. this, Will. Thank you, Jason, for being here. Thank you, Christina. That's fine. And Thank we'll you. see you all next week on Game Thank you for the peanuts, the muffins, the carrots, <laughs> the cantaloupe. <laughs> see you next time.